I spent, I spent years trying to convince my managers, no, you need to fly me up to the Western Isles. And then, and then suddenly, and suddenly, um, um, everyone's saying, uh, you know, this, this is the way, this, this is the gold standard is now, is now, you know, sort of telemedicine consultations. And, and you have, I think you have to be, there are there are disadvantages too. I think it's probably a bronze standard rather than a gold standard. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it's better than nothing. <laughs> yes, which is like the tagline, better than nothing. That was Dr. Ed Newman, consultant neurologist and movement disorder specialist in Glasgow, self-styled young soul rebel and keyboard player in the Nutcrackers, a band of neurosurgeons and neurologists who've had their music fired in the pubs and clubs of Glasgow itself. This teased neuro podcast tackles Parkinson's. We talked to Ed about how to diagnose it, how to manage it in the outpatient department, who to think about in terms of deep brain stimulation, and very importantly at the moment, how to get telemedicine right, or at the very least, less wrong. Um, actually, I was just looking at, as I was uh, looking at about your kind of CV briefly on, um, before we started, because um, you've been a consultant for just about the same length of time, me, about seven or eight years, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2013 I think yeah and so you and you trained in Glasgow isn't that right um and are working now in Glasgow across two sites yeah yeah so so I work so the the regional neuroscience center is the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital so I, I work there and do movement sort of work there um and I, I work at Glasgow Royal Infirmary when I do um some, I do my general neurology work right. there but I also I do some teaching for the university as well yeah so, um, and that, that's mostly at the regional site and I saw, obviously, that you're kind of quite heavily involved in the DBS service, and it, it, you are name-checked as being the Parkinson's telemedicine service lead for the Western Isles. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, a grand epithet, isn't it? Um, but yeah, so that, I mean, one of the reasons, and I, I know you've done some sort of podcasts and things um, in the last couple of weeks, haven't you, as well, uh, for the ABN about yeah, that, telemedicine? Yeah, yeah we, we, we talked about that talked about that with trainees and, and the difficulties with um telephone consultations and, and telling mm. how it's a, a, bit, a bit different to normality so i think i mean there's a, a kind of a broad range of um kind of people on the call uh, kind of experience wise some people who've literally just been like accelerated out of medical school into junior doctoring um through to um kind of our some of our kind of registrars who've pretty much just about to take up a, and in fact, you can see David on the call, who's literally just been appointed at the RVI as a movement disorder neurologist. So kind of like, it's quite a broad range. And, and then obviously uh, beyond that, um, some of our Parkinson's nurses, our uh, Parkinson's occupational therapists. So I wanted to kind of a, a sort of a broad audience as possible. Um, I suppose that like one thing I wanted to start with was just this idea of um, like, how should we be thinking about Parkinson's as a condition? Um, we did uh, like an MND um, podcast a while ago and like Tim Williams was talking about kind of proteinopathy, kind of neurodegeneration in general. And I, I think that's quite a kind of hot topic, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know whether you clinically, I, I, I mean, the clinical classification is, is, is the, I think Parkinson's disease is pretty syndromic. You know, mm. it, it, it's, it's a pattern that you recognize uh, with, with predominantly with it with, with the motor features I'm sure we'll go on to talk about some of the other um, uh, features in, involved I, I don't think about it pathologically as you know as a, a, as an entity I think I think pretty much you, you, you think about the, the the clinical presentation of Parkinsonism and um, 
and you think about some some of the other kind of allied disorders as close, I mean it gets lumped in with movement disorders and it gets lumped in with atypical Parkinsonism but really those are quite different disorders mm. um, and I think people's perception of it really depends on what their local clinical setup is so if you go to a um, a care of the elderly run movement disorder service you might have quite a different group of patients than you're going to see in a regional neuroscience service or you're going to see in a dbs service i think it's a broad church i think there's quite a range of um there's a range of phenotypes for parkinson's disease and that's probably what what makes things tricky as a trainee um because in, in, until unless you're doing regular movement disorder clinics you won't see that range and recognize the, the, the patterns of clinical phenotypes that that, that, that we'll commonly see. Yeah, and so, so maybe kind of expanding on that then. So as a new, if you think about your clinics, because probably you see Parkinson's patients in your kind of general clinic and Parkinson's patients in your kind of neuroscience with your neuroscience head on. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that different for you? Like in case mix wise, is it different? Or so when, in, a, in, in a general clinic, often it's, um, it, you know, you're seeing them at the time of presentation and then I will try and plug them into a, a movement disorder service. Mm. And that might be, you know, that might be my regional kind of in Glasgow, our setup's probably a bit different from other places. And we've, we, we, we would have more patients under the age of 65 with Parkinson's disease in our, in our neurology led clinic. Mm. And there's lots of local um, care of the elderly based clinics in, um, in and around Glasgow and the other health boards that we cover. Um, that would have the multidisciplinary team set up. So sometimes you'll 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 see a, you'll diagnose a new case in a general clinic, and then you'll just move them on to whatever the whatever service is 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 appropriate, uh, depending on their age. Within within the regional clinic, it, yeah, it tend, it tends to be it tends to be slightly different. You've got slightly more atypical Parkinsonism. You've got a younger group of patients, so you get slightly different problems. The younger patients who've got a bit more dystonia. You get the, the the patients who've got um, um, the motor fluctuations, you know, that, that are close to close to DBS or some other type of treatment. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, I, th- I think I think they are they're, they're, they're quite they're, they're quite different groups of PD. So if you think, because I have this sort of like, I quite like the kind of protein idea, just this kind of alpha synucleinopathy thing. Um, because part of the differential, obviously, are conditions that can trick you, like progressive supranuclear palsy, which has a, it, you know, is a tauopathy in the main and is, you know, lumped in, you're right, wrongly lumped in with Parkinson's. Um, and yet is, you know, completely different pathologically, it's different, clinically, it's different, rate of progression is different, problems are different. Um, so I, I sometimes kind of use that as a kind of tool to, pull apart the diagnosis like this feels like a tyopathy this these symptoms are a bit more synuclinopathy symptoms yeah yeah i mean c- certainly there is the overlap between dementia with Lewy bodies msa and pd is it, it's kind of it, it's obvious with the with a lot of the a lot of the non-motor features as well in the rem sleep behavior disorder side of things and um i have to say there is in in the early phase though um there, there can be a bit of confusion around um, um, uh, around the diagnosis, and it's it it's not always obvious uh, at, at the beginning that um, 
that you're dealing with an atypical Parkinsonian disorder. I, I, it's easy for us because we've got a long waiting list, right? And if you've got a long waiting list, by the time you're seeing them in clinic, the answer's pretty straightforward. Because yeah. They've developed their, they've developed their vertical gaze palsy or their, um, you know, or, or, or their, you know, autonomic disturbance in MSA is, is, is really obvious. And, um, and, and, and it looks like you've been really clever, but actually time's just told the answer. Yeah. I mean, can, can we, uh, although not to get hung up on the proteinopathy thing particularly, but you mentioned then three conditions that I would think of as synuclonopathy, kind of Lewy body type disorders. So multiple system atrophy, Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy body. And, and just for some of our more junior um, trainees, you know, what are the kind of common features that if you're seeing a patient with a Parkinsonian presentation that, that have that sort of synuclonopathy feel about it? Well, I think in, in the main, not to, to keep keeping things simple, they, 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 they present with Parkinsonism or mm. at least the ones that I see present with Parkinsonism. Yeah. Because otherwise, because they're by the, you know, it's, 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 you're looking at it the wrong way because they're referred up to a movement disorder clinic. Yes, so if, of course. If they're a purely cognitive or or a purely cerebellar kind of presentation, then often they, they have a slightly different route. But so so they have, um, albeit differing degrees of bradykinesia, tremor, rigidity, and and some postural and gait difficulties. With um, Parkinson's disease, it 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 it. it Obviously, you've got that that very slow. You've got the prodromal phase, and you've got a very slow evolution of symptoms over time. In in, in most cases, whereas um, um, dementia with Lewy bodies, the, the the Parkinsonism is often quite subtle. Mm. Um, but but the but the cognitive phenotype is usually is usually pretty obvious at the, at, at the start. There are some patients who, um, you know, we've got a cutoff of 12 months of re-diagnosing someone with Parkinson's disease, dementia, and, you know, as opposed to dementia with Lewy bodies. But usually, the, whilst there might be some, some cognitive slowing with, with the PD patients, you don't, you don't see frank dementia. And, and, mm. and at the presentation, the, the fluctuations and the visual hallucinations are quite unusual to, um, um, to, to, to see straight away. The, the pointers taught for um, MSA you, you've got you, you, frequently you've got your Parkinsonism, um, um, but it's it's they've often been attending lots of other uh, clinicians with their cardiovascular problems, um, so yeah, the kind of blood pressure related problems. They might have yeah, they might be attending a urologist or complaining to their GP about their urinary or bladder dysfunction. Uh, in men, erectile dysfunction being a, a common problem too. And, and, and actually, um, you have to step back and, and ask them about a lot of other symptoms that might not come to the fore straight away. Um, with all of these things, you can think, okay, this is someone who's Parkinsonian initially. And um, maybe over time, either those symptoms become more prominent or you just, you, you know, you, you, maybe you, you're slow to recognize it. Mm. And I, I use the kind of dream enactment kind of REM sleep thing as quite a strong indicator of one of those three disorders it doesn't it doesn't really discern them because it's pretty common in all of them uh, i sometimes feel like maybe it's a bit more common in msa than dlb or pd um but you know i, I suppose if there's lots of dream enactment and 
initially I was thinking about progressive supernuclear palsy and they've got lots of dream enactment. It sort yeah. of draws me away from that. Does, is that the same with you? I know, absolutely. I think it's, it's, um, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a tick that makes you think about that. And, and, um, and I think that's a really useful one. When, when I'm teaching medical students, so we, we talk about the, um, that Barcelona cohort of patients where they, they had presented to a, to a, a sleep clinic. I think, I think the first paper was, was about, about 15 years ago. And there's, there's a, a between 140 and 150 patients presenting with idiopathic REM sleep behavior disorder. And then the, the, the clinic just keeps on every, every four or five years reports on what happens to these patients hmm. and 80, and they, they have a brilliant, um, they, you know, they, they lose very few people to follow up and 85% of them uh, at 12 years <laughs> had, had Parkinson's disease, dementia, Lewy bodies and, or, you know, or MSA. Yeah. And so, I, yeah. So. And I think that's a really, you know, useful, uh, it's, I guess, kind of, it's the retrospectoscope by 10 years. It's, it's, it's tricky. Uh, cause you can't apply it prospectively always. Can you? No, no, no. no I, I, you do wonder though, if you, if you watch these people, for, if someone has REM sleep behavior disorder and you watch them for long enough, are they going to develop an alpha synucleinopathy? You know, hmm. you know, I think, I think that they're obvi- obviously much more than the general population. Are. What makes you think, um, then thinking about kind of differentials a little bit then. So you've got a kind of patient presenting with Parkinsonism and you've got that kind of in the bag. They appear Parkinsonian. You've touched upon the things that might make you think about DLB or like more straightforward PD, MSA. What makes you kind of think, oh, this is going to be PSP, progressive supernuclear palsy. What's the kind of red flag for that one for you, do you think, Ed? Yeah, do you know, do you know it's axial dystonia is one. Um, so if, you, you, if, 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 if the neck's really, um, uh, is, is really tight, um, the, the eye movements aren't, aren't always there very early on. Hmm. But if you've got, if you've got a, um, um, if, if the vertical saccade is some, somehow um, it, it impaired, then that that's always going to be that's always going to be a tick. The the um the obviously the the, the falls and and prominent cognitive symptoms will take you away from Parkinson's disease. Um, um kind of at, at, at presentation, I I I think that the PSP patients they look different. They that that I know I know it's a it's an unfortunate phrase the serpentine stare, but the the their blink rate is reduced in a slightly different way to the Parkinsonian face. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's quite odd to describe, but there's some, it's one of those instinctual things that, mm. that, that you kind of look at them and you just say, oh, okay, I think this is what's happening. And sometimes you're not sure. And sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll say, look, you, the, 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 there's evidence of Parkinsonism, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to do it. You know, I either do further investigations like imaging, or I'm going to, watch things clinically and, 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 and see how things go. But you've got, you've often got your suspicions from, from, from the onset that, that this isn't, this isn't Parkinson's disease and it's going to evolve into a clearly atypical disorder. I feel like, um, I don't know whether anybody else who's listening and has heard it. I, I'm, I'm maybe going to get this wrong. The Dunning-Kruger effect where, you know, ed- education where you start off really co- kind of lack of confidence about stuff. Cause you, you know, I've got a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and you get, to a certain point where you're like, well, I'm pretty good at this. And then you come around the other side of it, which is where you like, where you're sort of like, Oh no, I, like, I can't buy a diagnosis this week. What was wrong? I've yeah. lost all my mojo. And I, I feel a little bit like I've been that way with PSP. 
at various times a kind of love hate relationship with the diagnosis where I've gone through a kind of like, I'm pretty good at picking up PSP. And now I feel like there's all these kind of funny little phenotypes evolving. And I'm like, oh my God, almost anything could be PSP now. You, you mentioned a bit earlier on about um, telemedicine clinics in, in Parkinson's disease. And uh, as I mentioned, I, 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 I do a telemedicine clinic for the Western Isles. Hmm. So that's um, little, kind of group of Scottish islands, the Outer Hebrides. So we link with two small hospitals. Judging atypical Parkinsonism over the over a, v, a VC connection is hard, much harder. Yeah, you know those 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 subtleties of the examination, whether whether, whether it's eye movements or axial dystonia or hearing the or or, or seeing you know polymini myoclonus in in MSA or um, just just appreciating the gait in 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 and watching someone's recklessness as they stand up and sit down in the chair is something that you just is 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 re, it's a lot harder to do with the um, with the camera on also you lose the watching somebody come up the corridor and oh. get out of the chair and sit down and all that kind of this, stuff you know this is something that is really sacred to to, to to a movement disorder clinic you know i i i i joke that that that, that watching the patient, you know, you've called the patient, they're coming in from the clinic room, uh, in front, from, from the waiting area, they're walking towards your clinic room. It's at that point you decide what questions you're going to ask. Hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. And but most it, of the time you've made your mind up by the time they've sat down. Yeah. And then it's about hypothesis testing, isn't it? And kind of like, can I disprove my gut feeling? And that's where the REM sleep behavior disorder comes in. And that's when, you know, you know, or, or, or the other things, you know, and if they're in the wheelchair, then I'm going to go for the autonomic symptoms because I think yeah. this is the MSA. Yeah. You know, it, it's, and that, that becomes, that becomes harder on, 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 in a video. Yeah. But it's certainly very worthwhile. I think, um, going and getting the person, isn't it? If, for a face-to-face and watching how they get out of the chair. And I feel like PSP patients often end up going back into the chair multiple times before they get out of it or they rock it out of it uh, really recklessly, like you sort of talked about. Um, when they sit down, they really go hard into the chair and it sort of rocks back. And and anybody early in a wheelchair, I think that's, you know, like our, our therapists and our um PD nurses would be have a, like a real big alarm bell for early wheelchair use. Absolutely, and and, and I, I think one of the one of the best things about movement disorders is is how how the clinical examination is really useful and important, and it's a, it's an old fashioned subspecialty within neurology. But by the same token, that that's part of the reason that um, some of our non movement disorder colleagues and and the and the trainees can get a little bit intimidated by it as well because they just if if you don't if you're not seeing something regularly and you and you don't have the confidence with it 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 looks it looks a bit like voodoo Hmm. even more so sometimes with hyperkinetic movement disorders oh yeah well let's not even get into that (laughs) that hodgepodge of things (laughs) so I, i wanted to talk a bit ed about inpatient parkinson's and outpatient parkinson's which are awfully different things um uh, I mean, certainly when I was a junior doctor, you know, not a trainee neurologist, like a senior house officer, uh, Parkinson's really only had one face as far as I was concerned. And that was the kind of complex inpatient with all sorts of problems. He'd come in with one thing and then ended up with about 15 other 
Um, and it feels like there's kind of two types of ad- Parkinson's admission. There's admitted with their Parkinson's in tow, like uh, for a surgical procedure or something else, um, hip, uh, or, or admitted because of their Parkinson's, and they feel like two different admissions. Um, how do you approach that? I mean, do you, do you get asked to go up to the wards much to see patients? Like, if, if you're asked to see a patient, what's, like, what's your approach to that? Assuming they're an established diagnosis. Yeah, so, so the, major, the majority of the inpatient um, PD patients that I see are part, part of the DVS service. Hmm. They're either coming in for an MRI scan under a GA or they're coming in for a leave it over challenge or they're post-operative and we're, you know, and we're assessing them as part of that. Occasionally we get, we get referrals to do, you know, um, for, um, for, for both of the scenarios that you, you, you described, but there is where, where I work a lot, a lot of the time that the nurses will do that first line hmm. and then, and then come to us if there's a, you know, um, if there's, you know, something that they, they, they require advice with. I think, in, in, I think there's a bit more focus on inpatient care in Parkinson's disease. Obviously, Parkinson's UK, which does a lot of really good work, um, tried to promote the um, um, get it to you know, get the medications on time because that can be a big issue on on, on the wards. Um, but we do see patients going in with other you know falls ca- causing a, a, a fractured neck, a femur. Mm. Patients going in with an acute abdomen, and then. Um, so these are patients with Parkinson's disease in for another reason. And then, um, people will forget about their Parkinson's disease until, um, you know, they've been without their drugs for a couple of days and, you know, they, they, you know, they've they've suddenly gone a bit rigid and, uh, and, and, and maybe got into trouble with, uh, you know, Parkinsonism, hyperparexia. I have to say, I don't, I don't see a, a, a huge number of patients being admitted as a result of their Parkinson's symptoms being bad, but that, that's going to reflect the fact that, that I, I, my, my cohort within my regional clinic is, 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 is a young cohort. Yeah. And, um, and, and we'll probably go to some lengths, you know, you know to, to try and avoid that happening. I think one of my biggest heart sinks is being asked to go up to a medical ward to review somebody because somebody spotted that they look a little bit Parkinsonian or they have a bit of a tremor and they're in for something completely different. Um, you know, like a chest infection or like they're on the urology ward for some reason or another. And they're just like, you know, while they're in, could you just pop along and you just, I don't know what, like, I don't know what it is. I find that incredibly difficult. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know whether it's because I'm used to my waiting room and my little clinic room where I kind of reside, but I find that is it. Why am I finding that harder? I, do you know, I think there is a context thing that, that's that, that's that's different, isn't there? You know, um, um, you on, on you probably yeah. I I, th- I think you you some of the symptoms in parkinson's disease and even some of the signs are can be non-specific in the wrong context mm. so you know some someone who's whose whose gait is a bit slow well you know but they 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 you know they're, they're recovering from sepsis and they you know judging it is a, is a bit different when you when you're seeing them as an outpatient you you're seeing them because because that's because their movement problem is is the primary issue for the referral so i say yeah i th- I, th- I think that the, the the context does 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 make make a difference. I mean, if you go to the gastro wards, you can you, you can convince yourself there's 
they're, you know, that some, 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 some of the patients are, you know, look a bit, or, you know, that's, that's not really the tremor you should have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> flap, flap, flap. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe I should cut myself some slack. I mean, it, it, it's almost so difficult, I think, to get the diagnosis right within patients when, when that's not why they've been admitted. Yeah. That it's that it, there's a tiny bit of me that almost wants to just put my foot down and refuse to do it, but then I also have a, high, a huge waiting list, and I think, well, while they're here, I yeah, should probably yeah. go. Um, but I like I, I can I, I know for a fact that our registrars are often asked to go and see somebody for that reason, and I I, I would just say, gosh, that's awfully difficult. But in the outpatient clinic, you you you've got a letter from a GP. You've often got a partner who, you know, or or a family member or friend who's turned around to you and said, "Well, he wasn't walking that way um, nine months ago. He or or you know, he used. To, I now have to help him out of a car." So you get you get that 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 additional history both from the GP and from the um, from the other family member. I think is 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 really it's really instrumental in in, in making that. And you as when you're seeing inpatients, it's it, it's it's a different it's a different. It's a different scenario. Yeah. Also, I think, you know, the, the, the little foam slippers. <laughs> How do you assess everybody's gait with those things on? Um, I think Deborah, our OT, is on, on the call and she's just like, oh, she must be like, oh, so, oh, on a ward, those little foam slippers. Um, what, what about, I mean, I, I'm often caught cursing at work, largely because I have, like, like you've got kids and I can't swear in the house anymore, but, um, you know, I think there's kind of nil by mouth, NBM sort of thing, which, you know, I think she definitely does not mean no bloody medication, but often mm. does seem to mean no bloody medication for days. Um, can you, do you have an opinion on the kind of rising popularity of retigotine patches and for that patients who've been admitted onto the general take with her, with their Parkinson's? Like what's your, what's your, you're smiling. So like, I, I could, what's the deal with that? <laughs> Do you know, are you familiar with the optimal calculator? Yes. Because the registrars will be, because it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a question, you know, and I, I think it's got a role, mm. you know, the, the, the patient who's, who's you know, they're, 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 they're brought in, you know, with, with a um, acute abdomen, they're going for their abdominal surgery, that, you know, they're going to, yeah, and, you know, reticotine is really useful in that context. I'm always, um, I, I'm, I'm never quite sure that the, 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 the way that the dose equivalents are calculated is it, it sort of doesn't quite compute with me and, and, and my clinical experience as, as the outpatient. I think in that scenario where someone really shouldn't take anything orally for a, for a, a, a you know, for a prolonged, you know, 24, 48 hours, however long it is, then that can be useful. And the important thing is that you don't leave someone without any dopaminergic stimulation. Mm. But, um, a lot of the time, you know, they can, the, the, you know, the patient can still take tablets and, and um, it, it's, it's seen as an easy kind of way out. I worry a little bit about the kind of older, frailer patient who got maybe some swallowing difficulties because of their Parkinson's. They're in with a the UTI, they're a bit delirious, they're at risk of hallucinations. Yeah. And they yeah, just get sort of banged on this massive agonist and, you know, hey presto, uh, you know, instant chaos. Um, that, that's that, that's right. I'm, I, to be honest, over, over t and again, I, I think I used to be a bit more confident with agonists than I am now. And you, you, you have a few patients who who have um, um, 
who have the problems that that, that, that the modern agonists caused and 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 you, 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 it makes you a bit more cautious yeah i think also that the, the thing that sometimes i feel people forget is that reticotine does not provide nutrition or hydration <laughs> for for patients with nothing to eat, nothing to drink, you know, because they're nil by mouth, and yeah, I mean, I know, I know, I shouldn't. I'm preaching to the converted slightly, but um, yeah, that reticotine only solves one aspect of their care potentially, if that. Um, what then about let's say like focus on Parkinson's in an outpatient setting, and I get the sense Ed from what you're saying that like, that you a lot of the patients you're seeing are younger patients now my, like in in contrast in side, at least up until recently we've not had any geriatrician care of the elderly kind of input to pd in our hospital or area direct area anyway which means that you know i go from you know 30 years to 95 years in in our clinic but if yours is a bit more sort of circumscribed and younger i mean so Give us a bit of an idea about like age range for your patients, kind of youngest, for example. It, it does vary a little bit. I mentioned um, um, the, the, the with the Western Isles um, clinic, they they don't have access to a, 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 a geriatrician at the mm. uh, at, at the minute. So I, I do see that I do see a, a kind of older um, um, group of patients within that. We've got about ninety patients up up there um, that, that that we we see via telemedicine within the regional clinic. Uh, the, the Parkinson's cases, I mean, the, the youngest would be in the, in, the, in their late thirties or mid thirties, and then and, and and usually by the time they're sixty-five or seventy, they're they're, they're, they're transferred into a care of the elderly uh, clinic. So most most of my patients at referral um, will be um, kind of in the, in their fifties, so so somewhere around there. Okay, and the, and the younger ones, I mean, I feel a little bit like I've sort of. It's going to sound terrible. I've sort of almost given up on genetic testing, um, which of course is a self-fulfilling prophecy because if I if I feel negatively about the amount of times I get a positive result, and then I'm going to do it less, I'm going to get fewer positives. What's your What's your experience of chasing that particular kind of uh, causative gene? Yeah, I th- do you know? Um, I, unfortunately, I don't. I think that the, the advances in the, monogen you know these monogenic causes of parkinson's disease haven't really heralded the the, the changes that that we were hoping for either in terms of therapeutic options or understanding um a, more about the kind of wild type or kind of kind of non-genetic forms of, of, of parkinson's disease i don't um i don't routinely test um I, it's, I, maybe, maybe once or twice a year we'll we'll We'll, we'll, we'll test a younger case. Um, I we have access recently to it to a panel um, that um, my colleagues in Dundee have set up, and and so so can it, it's it's now available and it's easy it's easy to do in, you know within within Scotland. Um, but I haven't had a positive test in in ages. <laughs> yeah. Well, that feels me. That makes me feel slightly better. And it, and it doesn't it hasn't made made a difference when you've got when there's a positive family history or you've got someone who's really young and often the patients will bring it up themselves you know they'll they'll have done some reading around it and 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 you have and you have that discussion but overall it, it it's still a, even within the young even with a, in a younger cohort it's still a it's still a relatively kind of small proportion of patients that are affected 
I don't, uh, you know, there's there's some talk about how you, um, you know, can clinically differentiate a, a patient who's got a mutation in LARC2 from a, um, you know, a patient who's got a Parkin mutation. And I'm sure if you if your numbers are big enough that you can you can make those phenotypic kind of um, deductions, but you, you have to have a lot of patients to be able to do that. And I, and I, I it's it's not something that I recognise yet. Yeah. There's a question. Some of the questions come in by, by let me see if I just open that one. So, yeah, so Daniel was kind of asking, do you often test for Wilson's in young folk with Parkinsonism? So when I, I mean, when I started as a, as a, as a research fellow, um, I did a, a movement disorder clinic twice a week for two years and then did quite a few of them as a registrar and then as a, as a consultant. And I, I've, 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 I've checked a, a lot of copper and serotonin. <laughs> <laughs> And 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 yes, I've I've seen I've seen a few cases of Wilson's disease, but none of them presented in the way that Parkinson's disease presents. And I, I know I know it's on the list. So if you've got if you've got a young onset movement you know movement disorder uh, case, then then you absolutely should test it because it's a you know, it's a it's a treatable thing. But it's 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 not it's yeah I, I've never I've never seen one presenting as as Parkinson's disease. Yeah, I mean. Likewise, I mean, I have a, a chap that I look after with Wilson's, but it was a pediatric presentation that I've kind of, he's transitioned to my care now. Um, I test it infrequently. Um, and I think what, what reassures me slightly is, again, A, like you, I think more you're more likely to see the weird dystonia and bizarre tremor. And, you know, usually Neuro Wilson's presents a bit earlier. Um also, I feel like the MRI is a pretty good way of screening out. And um, I think if you've got neurological movement disorder manifestations of Wilson's, you should really have abnormal basal ganglia on MRI. And most of the younger patients I'm scanning with an MRI because they're very young. Um, so I feel like inadvertently I'm doing all right. <laughs> the, cases that I've, the cases that I've seen have, have, have come through gastro. So they, 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 they've had their gastro... Uh, presentations and there's been a problem in terms of the create uh, collating therapies and 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 the neurosymptoms have come a bit later right so as as they've been put on treatment they've developed the yeah, yeah, symptoms it's, okay it's interesting um, um you know and one of them i think i didn't see them at the time of diagnosis but they had neurological symptoms and liver dysfunction at the time of diagnosis right. but, but it says it's not it's not it's not a common thing have you i'm thinking then about um kind of younger patients are there any sort of things that are a bit different say like a patient in their 30s or 40s and you're sort of working them up and die maybe you've kind of done done the diagnosis um are there things that you might expect to be them to experience um symptom wise or side effect wise uh assuming you put them on treatment that that you wouldn't necessarily see in somebody in their, you know, I don't know, in their early seventies, like a little thing of things that you kind of keep an eye out for more in the younger ones. In terms of common side effects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think their age will influence what, what drugs you use uh, to, you know, to, to, to some extent. Um, I, I, I don't know about, uh, I don't know about you, but, but young men with impulsivity is, 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 is a pattern that, that, I, I, I try. I've, I've seen, and I, I try and avoid, um, mm. uh, uh, particularly 
um, big dose, you know, reasonable doses of, uh, of agonists can, 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 can be pro problematic in that group. Um, dystonia in the younger patients can, you know, can be a bit of a problem as well. And um, again, I, I seem to be blaming young men for everything, but, but the dopa dysregulation, so take, you know, spot, spotting, the, spotting the patient who's likely to, to take more and more of a, a, a medication and, and, and then start their motor complications a bit earlier is is um you know there's some patients from the beginning that you you, you can um you'll have your suspicions in i can remember um um starting someone who was very mild with his parkinsonism um starting him on a, a low dose of, uh, of levodopa and within six months he was telling me well, well um brilliant effect and now it's wearing off and he did he, he he did really badly you could you could you could tell from the beginning that that he was just he was just gonna kind of fluctuate straight away hmm. um and you didn't you didn't get that honeymoon phase where you've got this period of, of 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 reasonable motor control without that without the wearing off and the dyskinesias so do you so i guess is what you're saying Ed, then that that the younger patients are more prone to earlier fluctuations maybe with levodopa and yeah in in my experience hmm. and and um yeah um, the, the side of the side effects of impulsivity the fluctuations in levodopa and and the um um and the kind of using overusing levodopa as well. Yeah. What I mean, can you give an example of some impulsivity kind of issues that you've come across? I always think the kind of anecdotes or stories are illuminating in their own right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we 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 try we try and um um. We, I think I think we've got good at telling patients about gambling as as, as a side effect. Um, and, and, and some of that's worked its way into the Parkinson's disease patient forums and, and, and certainly the Parkinson's UK website. And so um, that th they know about those. Um, sexual impulsivity is a big problem with, with um, the younger patients, particularly, you know, particularly the men. Mm. And um, um, I can, you can ask them if they if, if if they get any 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 impulsivity and and they'll often deny it and just looking at the partner mm -hmm. <laughs> the that you ask the question and um you you often get a different a different story i had i had one guy who was um he yeah he, you almost become a bit checklisty with with the side effects of these drugs particularly when you've got a busy clinic and you're trying mm -hmm. to cover non-motor symptoms and and, and occupational issues and etc. And so you you can ask quickly about those, and then um, and then weeks later, the the the, the PD nurse will come back, will come to you, and will say, um, you know, he's you know he's he's got sexual impulsivity, and it's 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 a big issue within you know you know within their marriage. You know, they didn't want to say anything while they were there, but you know, but but they'll come to the nurse. So I think. A lot of the time, the nurses will pick this up where where we won't, and I, I, maybe maybe patients just feel more comfortable discussing it with them. Maybe it's the partner getting in touch with the nurse directly, you know that. But but keep asking. You have to keep asking. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. And I think um, yeah, keep asking, keep documenting that you've asked as well, which is kind of unfortunately part of the issue with medicine these days is if you didn't ask it it didn't get done exactly there is a defensive component to that isn't there but then okay. I don't know, do, you, do you use the non-motor symptom scale at all 
Um, no, we've sort of gone hot and cold on scales and checklists and things over time. I think sometimes you just feel like you're um, a bit of a slave to the list yeah. or something. Um, I know that we are, uh, I say we like basically anything that's good that happens in the movement disorder clinic uh, largely comes through our kind of team members, like our nurses and stuff. And I just, I just absorb that into the, aren't we amazing? Um, I often say I'm, I'm, I'm much worse at Parkinson's in my Whitby general neurology clinic than I am at Parkinson's in my movement disorder clinic, yeah. uh, you know, at, at James Cook in Middlesbrough. And I don't know what, like I'm the same person, but I'm not in the groove yeah. in a general neurology clinic in the same way that I am like, okay, I'm in, I'm in Parkinson's mode. Um, think how good at epilepsy you are in Whitby though. I'm really, really <laughs> pretty, pretty mediocrely good at that. <laughs> um, are there any kind of tips exam wise? I was trying to think about this and like, um, uh, for SHOs or, um, our registrars, you know, you were talking a little bit about how challenging movement disorders are because of that sort of, you know, that sort of voodoo kind of gestalt sort of feel that people who've been doing it for a long time go, ah, that just looks like bleh. And you're like, what? Hi. Um, like, so where do you, where do you even start or, you know, what yeah. like, how do you get the best rigidity test or how do you get the, the most out of bradykinesia testing? Just kind of like the very kind of core stuff. I, th- I, th- I think you have it's a routine that you have to practice and and it, and it starts by getting the patient in a really good position so making making sure that they're comfortable in their chair they're relaxed with their arms in their lap um get them to get them to count backwards or if they're if or if that's too simple for them do the days of the week backwards or the months of the year backwards get them to close their eyes um and and, and see if the tremor comes out wait um when, when, when they're putting their arms out, pop for a, when you're you're looking for a postural tremor, wait for the for for, for that tremor to emerge. Um, the 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 um, bradykinesia, I said, but you know, you, I mean, have a routine for whether it, you know you most people will do finger taps, ha, you know, hand movements and alternating movements, but but you do have to you do have to do these things for a while for for you to pick up the. The, the bradykinesia and yes if someone's got very obvious bradykinesia you're going to see it very early but but sometimes it, it, it takes it takes a while to emerge rigidity don't don't forget actual rigidity feel the neck it's that that that's 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 useful mm, um um watching watch as I, we mentioned this a, a bit already but watching the patient arise from the seated position looking at the posture being systematic when you're assessing the gait to say, you know, stride length, arm swing, watch them turn. Parkinson's patients turn in a different way to patients who've got a cerebellar disorder. Um, um, posture instability is, a, is, a, is, 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 is another kind of useful, when, it, when, it, when it's abnormal, it, it takes you down a slightly different road. Um, How often do you do a pool test these days? Are you like doing that? I'm not going to say I'm not going to say that I would do it on the same patient every clinic appointment, but as part of my my, my clinical examination, I would always I, yeah I always do it uh, for a new patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and I, I I guess part of it is part of it is uh, in my examination time is is my thinking time. Hmm. So I've I've taken the history and sometimes with the history and, and and watching the patient walk to your clinic room, you've kind of made up your mind what you think that the, the diagnosis is, and yet. Um, 
when I'm doing that, they're, they're, I'm 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 I'm, I'm, work, I'm adding things up. I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm putting ticks in one box and crosses in another, and I'm, I'm I'm making my mind up finally on you know when it when it when it comes to the examination. So I I I, I try and do it the same way each uh, each time. Okay. I, th I suppose I suppose neurology brings out obsessive kind of routines in all of us. So, but, but, <laughs> no dopamine, no no dopamine agonist for you then, Ed. Lord no. <laughs> yeah i think that's true um we, we we talked about it like the tricky pro like i find impulse control behavior problems really difficult hard to predict even with counseling they still seem to crop up um and you're right i think particularly younger blokes that's a nightmare um of all of the stuff that we deal with i think it can just be um it it it's it it's time consuming. You can see the damage that's done within, within, you know, within a family unit or a relationship. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's devastating. And the other thing is, you, you, you know, that, you know, that you've, um, you've ruled out a, a, a useful therapeutic option. So it kind of mm. limits your armory going forward. Um, you know, and, and so, so it's, yeah, it can be, it can be so time consuming. And I, I think, Access to good um, uh, to an experienced neuropsychiatrist who's you know who might be able to help you with some of the you know psychological aspects. Uh, it, it, it's hard to come by. Yeah, that is very. They're, they're like gold dust. Yeah. What are the other things that you find hardest? I was just trying to think because I've got a little list of things I struggle with. Um, but you know, what other things are kind of like your hard sinks the wrong word. But, okay. But you know, like in a busy clinic, you just think, oh God, speech problems. Hmm. I, th I think it can be so important to patients, you know, it, that, that not being able to project or being disastrous and, you know, symptoms that, that symptoms that you can see that are not that, that, you know, are not going to be dopa responsive. So hmm. that might be, a, um, you know, they've got a gait disorder, a balance disorder, a speech disorder. Um, those are kind of things where you can think, uh, yeah, I know, I know the therapists, you know, can do their best and, and, and help here but there's nothing pharmacologically that I, I I'm, I'm going to make you know I'm going to make better and the other thing that's a slight heart sink for me and I, I, I suppose I say this with 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 my kind of DBS work in mind is it, I kind of think I kind of think oh I'm, I'm not going to be able to I'm not gonna, you're, you're not going to be suitable for DBS hmm. I'm going to be suitable for an advanced therapy so you, you're sort of narrowing you know what this is going to be a problem in a couple of years time is what is, yeah. is what you know the the the, the other the other aspects of uh, non-motor symptoms i think are, 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 are i mean i think we're better at recognizing them now but i think that, that that there are fewer decent options in terms of treating them and so um if you apathy is a really hard thing to treat um um depression anxiety you can you know can go in waves and that can that, you know that that's one thing. Um, psychosis is, is, is almost as difficult as as impulsivity. If you, mm. you know, um, yeah, I think so, I think you're right. I think apathy, not you know, is awfully hard. I, I think sometimes also just difficult to, to tease apathy out from depression. Sometimes um, I, I'm not even sure I know how to do it. No, no, but you again, it's you can't you you see it though. 
and you see, and, and, and it's the way they interact again that they they the way they they interact with you and their partner and their um and um you, you can you can see that it's that it's, it's it's quite a damaging thing and i think i think the fa- it's hard for the family because they, they they say well this is a fundamental personality shift um and, and so i think i think it's a tricky one to take david okai is a, a neuropsychiatrist out in oxford I don't know if you know david but, um he he sometimes uses the kind of description for apathy and depression that um, patients who are depressed are sort of disengaged and they don't initiate. And that's true for apathy. Um, and they can seem very, very flat and low in mood. And that's true for both and also a feature of Parkinsonism in some respects. But he says that, um, you know, in depression, if you're sort of taken somewhere to do something by a family member, you don't enjoy it if you're depressed. Whereas you're still capable of enjoying it if if you have apathy, you just don't initiate yeah. to go and do that task. And I thought that was maybe quite a useful tip for clinic and trying to pull them apart. What what that leads you to therapeutically, I have no idea. Yeah, I always think that, that with apathy, you don't empathise with the patient in quite the same way. You 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 know, if you see someone's depressed, you can you you, you can empathise a little bit with that. But with the apathy, that 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 it, 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 a barrier is there. Yes, so Deborah R.O.T. has just said, I was once told by a mental health colleague that uh, apathy was the enemy at the door. And I think, yeah, I mean, just and particularly for, you know, trying to get people engaged with physiotherapy, with, you know, that kind of going out and socializing and kind of, you know, because that, that pruning of your social contacts that happens as Parkinson's progresses and you, but, you know, you're kind of, I know our, all our worlds have shrunk. <laughs> you know very rapidly and recently but you know that, that if people have apathy i think it's incredibly hard to grow those connections again isn't it um tell us a bit i mean you mentioned a few times about dbs and um <laughs> pardon me and kind of advanced therapies non-oral therapies different terminology what are you looking for uh, like who's your ideal DBS referral? I think this is something that's tricky as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, there is, there isn't one. Um, um, you know, there, I think there are different groups within Parkinson's disease who, who will who will improve with with DBS uh, surgery. I think that the main group are patients who are fluctuating, and in in an on state, they're good. You know, functionally, um, what, you know, from from a gait point of view. Um, um, from a, a kind of um, dexterity point of view, they're they're, they're doing fine, um, and and their therapies are causing them to have you know off periods during the day. Then you go to a list of things that that, that kind of that will, that would impair that. So so you're going to make speech worse. You're going to make balance worse. So you know teasing out what's dopa responsive and what's not dopa responsive. But most patients, if they've got gait and balance and cognitive difficulties. They're not going to be good DBS um, candidates, but if they've got a good quality of life when they're when they're on and they've got those motor fluctuations, um, and they don't and and they, and they don't have significant comorbidities, then that that that's the that's the primary good candidate for for DBS. The other group that's probably a bit undersold is 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 the patient who's who's got an unresponsive, um, who's, who's got a significant tremor, it could be a large amplitude or w- whatever a tremor that is causes functional impairment and doesn't improve with with dopaminergic therapy so this is the patient that you that ends up getting more and more more and more medication um you know they, they don't their gait is fine that the, you know the, the, 
treatment treats their um, rigidity and bradykinesia, but it, it doesn't touch the tremor. And they can be they can be a, um, a, get a good result out of DBS. Okay, yeah, and I think um, are there other sort of things then that you are looking for, like in terms of patient expectations, or you know, how do you how do you kind of navigate that? So, so that, that I mean, patient expectations are, are a huge part of our, our setup. We um, um, as as part of our um, assessment clinic um we the, 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 the if we think someone's a potential good candidate with it they'll, they'll, they'll be sent to neuropsychology and neuropsychology will, will will explore their expectations we ask them about their expectations in, in 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 the clinic and we try and explain that um that they're never gonna that it's not a cure and we're aiming to get them as good as they are at their best but we can't make them any better than that with the exception or i should say of, of the that the patient who's got the under, you know the drug unresponsive tremor, um, and the, the, when the neuropsychologists go through this in detail, they'll, they'll say, out of ten, what kind of improvement do you want in each of the following symptoms? And and and, and you know they'll include some symptoms which won't improve with the with the DBS. Well, we, we we'll go through it with them, and we'll 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 say these are the symptoms that will improve, these are the symptoms that, that it won't improve, and the, and um, despite that. The, the power of social media in terms of patients having access to, um, it's not just social media, you know, the, the patient support groups where they, they, they would have met someone who's had a really good response to DBS. And it doesn't matter what you, you know, it doesn't matter what you tell them. If they've seen someone before and after who's had an excellent response, then that's what they want and, and, and they'll be quite single-minded about it. So ma managing those expectations, I wouldn't go to the extent that, that, ex that high expectations is a reason for us not to do surgery frequently, but sometimes it can be. It, it can it can push things um, it, it can it can push things a bit too far. Do you have? Uh, I mean, I, I guess we probably all have this experience of patients who you think are an would be an amazingly good candidate for uh, DBS or an infusion therapy, and they're just not interested. So you know, I have, yeah, absolutely. And and one one of the um, the converse is usually true that I've got lots of patients who be terrible candidates for DBS, <laughs> pretty convinced that they're going to be that, that that this is the only treatment that's going to improve them. But but yeah, there has been. I I am um, when 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 you're involved with DBS, it probably um, it, it it probably kind of influences you a little bit when when you're looking after the patients in, in who are earlier on in, in their disease, you, you sort of see someone, you kind of think, Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be implanting you in, you know, you say to yourself, not to the patient, but you, you, you kind of thinking, I, I, I can see them as a good candidate for DBS in four or five years time or, or you know, or a shorter period. Um, there are, there are, I've, I've seen a couple of good cases where they, they, they simply wouldn't, we've discussed advanced therapies and they just simply wouldn't countenance mm. neurosurgery. Just that the concept of someone, um, um, you know, doing a craniotomy and opening their dura is just, it's just it, it, I, 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 absolutely not. And it, you know, that's, that, I think that's a pretty reasonable response when you, when, when you think about it. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree. I, I often, there's a tiny bit of me thinks, what shame, like, like I'm, in, I'm internalizing this conversation because it's, oh, he would do so well, and also you know that if you if you leveraged that decision, it would be the one time it would go really badly wrong. 
Absolutely. And do you not think that you're making the same error that the person who's looking at a good response in someone else is doing? You're 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 projecting onto on onto onto a patient what you think is a good response based on your on your subjective idea of this patient. But actually, this is a this is a personal decision. And only that patient knows how neurosurgery is going to have impact on their family, on their job, on other aspects, and 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 and, that, and that's that's fair enough. Having said that, I'm sure you were asked loads about focused ultrasound. Um, oh, all the time. Yeah. We gonna, I was going to come on to that in a minute. I was going to say that one of the more chastening experiences I had uh, of discussing DBS because we don't do DBS in our our site, but. Um, I was at a regional meeting where there was kind of like education meeting and the you know lots of dbs people were there in the northeast and people were talking about cases and somebody was presenting a case um of a chap let me think now so his wife was quite unwell with advanced ms he was her carer he had a very severe tremor i don't think it was parkinson's i think it was a sort of you know dystonic or a essential tremor um and it was getting to the point now where her disability had progressed from her MS and he was finding it incredibly hard to push her wheelchair and um, help her to get out and about. And so there was discussion about whether or not um, this chap should have DBS uh, to try and so he could continue in his role as a carer and help his wife get out and about in the wheelchair. And there followed a good 30 minutes of discussion about the optimal target in this chap's brain, um, like GPI or was it like ST or like thalamic and or dual targeting and yada yada. Um, and uh, one of the, it's a, it's a mixed meeting, and one of the care of the elderly um, consultants popped a hand up after about 30 minutes of kind of neuro nerdery and just went, Would a powered wheelchair? not be a simpler solution <laughs> and the silence in the room you could just amazing but then that's when you want to stand up and applaud the geriatricians because because that's you know no no neurologist is 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 bright enough to do that but it really made me you know honestly everybody just shut up immediately just looked about oh, we're absolute knobs aren't we we're idiots there's, clearly that's the best solution and i can just see now i can I, like i know who's on the call i can see deborah rot chortling in her sitting room going yep uh, you're all a bunch of idiots but yeah and you're right it's that whole kind of you get carried away with this kind of like agenda uh, yeah. that you have and this would be really good for you but actually everybody's different that way aren't they yeah i i, I think i think the geriatricians in, in general are better at, at doing that whole holistic thing hmm. and and and, and they, they practice realistic medicine a, a, a bit more than uh, a bit more than we do sometimes yeah. so yeah a bit you know it's a good anecdote though what have you what have you done around um the focused ultrasound questions that you get asked uh, yeah well it's mostly dodging them we yeah, obviously it. Um, there was there was a it, it got it got some TV coverage and then um, patients became interested very suddenly a couple of years ago with with what was happening at Imperial College and um, and then that I I've had quite a few patients who actually have been referred in for DBS who 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 were looking at whether to do focused ultrasound abroad and some 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 of them have actually sort of gone for it and we we. 
it's difficult. You're, you're, you're asked your opinion on a treatment that you've not really had much experience of. And um, you know that there isn't, there's a limited amount of follow-up and they're all, what one center might experience might be quite different in another center. So it's one of those ones where, where we, we, we play up the negatives because you don't, it, it, it's fraught with, you know, uncertainties. I think, yeah, I'm not, Graham, I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone a bit with it. So for the benefit of those that don't know a huge amount about it, so this is kind of MRI-guided, highly focused ultrasound. So it's kind of like 200 points of ultrasound beams kind of around your cranium. You go into an MRI scanner for hours with a kind of um, cage on your head so you don't move. And then the, the, these all these beams kind of focus on a, a deep area within the brain, kind of like thalamus-type area, um, and you kind of lesion the brain with ultrasound in the MRI scanner, and people kind of go in and out. A uh, bit more, bit more of a lesion, come out, check the tremor, go back in. Bit more of a lesion, back. You know, so the it's it's quite an undertaking. Um, I don't I don't know how much of a role it's going to have in Parkinson's disease in the long term. There's obviously some good examples where where it's had a it's had a really good response for patients who've got a unilateral dystonic tremor. Um, hmm. Uh, um, but but with Parkinson's, it's hard to know. I mean, it is a retrograde step surgically in yeah. that you know you 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 you're creating a lesion rather than the beauty of DBS. You know, if you agree, is is that you're not lesioning, you're you're, you're stimulating, um, and and you can alter that and you can switch it off if it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but watch this space and and and, and we'll we'll see how it evolves. I don't I know whether there'll be the, 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 the um, I don't know whether projects such as getting a focused ultrasound service up and running around the country is, I think it's, that's a big capital investment at a time where the NHS, I, I don't know, for example, in five years time, whether how many centers around the UK will be doing it. Mm. I have had two patients go for it. One of whom I counseled against in his early eighties with quite bad um, tremor um on in london, in london yeah uh on warford <laughs> and i was like uh, you know this is i really don't I think operate on him yeah yeah and he was very you know and we we talked about it pros and cons he went on the waiting list had it done paid for it to have it done it, it, amazingly successful Really? N equals one is my experience thus far. Mm. I've got one other patient on the waiting list in london but um I, you know i i did uh, i did eat a large plate of humble pie in clinic following that because yeah. we'd had a detailed discussion about how I thought this probably wasn't a very safe idea. Um, and there mm-hmm. are side effects from it. You know, it's not without its problems with kind of um, Korea and ataxia and those sorts of things. And, yes, uh, we've, seen, we've seen some mixed results in patients who've had it done. Yeah. Which no, I guess no, is I the same for DBS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't seen it. Um, we, we haven't seen um, seen anyone who's had it in, in London we haven't uh, they, these have been cases where, they, where they've gone abroad for it right um, and so so different centers might might have have, 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 have different results um, but yeah, yeah yeah DBS can go can go wrong absolutely but with DBS at least you've got you've got the experience of knowing who the good candidates are mm-hmm. and what you know and and how and, and and i think i think you can be fairly good at predicting that yeah and you can alter the parameters and, and like you say it's it's more nuanced it seems like you know the ultrasound's kind of all or nothing and so it's kind of like if it goes well great 
but you can't undo it. Yeah, and maybe your eight-year-old patient, that's the, that's the right decision to make. You know? mm. Well, it clearly was for him. You could roll the dice and say, well, that's what I'm yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the telemedicine thing? I think we're all stumbling our way through telemedicine at the minute. You know, like in my first real taste of it, proper taste of it was yesterday and a little bit more today. But it was, uh, you know, what, what, have you got any kind of tips for us kind of fledgling telemediciners from your experience of, of running it for a while now in um, the Western Isles? So I, the first thing I would say is is that my my experience is probably um, um, it, 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 I am I'm, I was doing a different thing. So it's um, I'm not I'm I wasn't dialing into patients' houses, which is what what we're currently doing. I guess in in Scotland we're using um, attend anywhere sometimes mm-hmm. near me. I, 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 I guess you're using sort of similar stuff. But in in that situation, you're dialing into a patient's house and um, Hopefully they've got their laptop or tablet or smartphone set up in a way that you can see them reasonably. Pre- what I was doing in the Western Isles is slightly different because I'm linking into a hospital with a VC. Mm. The, the patients are in a in a there's a waiting room, and 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 they're called in by the nurse and they're, and and they're sitting there, um, you know, with the nurse and 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 there's a clinic of 10 12 patients that that, 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 you'll, that you'll see that way so it's a slightly different environment because you've got a good audiovisual connection the, the seat is positioned in a way that's so so that you can see them and you can hear them it, you don't have a lot of the fraught difficulties that you have when you're connecting into someone's house where the bandwidth might drop and you you, you lose a bit of the audio or or, or, or the, the the vision or the, the kind of the video kind of freezes in, mm. Um, that 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 kind of thing. So technically, it was it was an easier thing to do. Plus, you've got a nurse there to to aid with it with, with with your examination. I think um, I, I suppose I would I, I would urge a bit of caution with it in that um, in 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 that it's quite it's quite having having seen these patients in the Western Isles and then examine them face to face at some later point. It can be. Um, it's it, don't don't overestimate the signs that you can pick up hmm. it, it's 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 a it's a it's a blunt tool when you're doing that you I mean if someone's got um if, if if a new case has got a fairly advanced parkinson's disease and 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 the diagnosis is easy then that's that's fine but a lot of our a lot of the cases that will be referred are slightly more nuanced and 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 it's that, that that diagnostic uncertainty is is it can be tricky. So have a low threshold for saying, okay, we've we, we've met, we've spoken, I've seen you on the video, but I do want a face to face consultation. We had it amongst my consultant group recently. We've had a discussion about what the proportion of um, from from general clinics, what the proportion of of, of callbacks for face to face examinations is, is going to be, and I think that varies quite a lot. I think if you're doing a lot of first seizure work and TIA clinics, then you're not necessarily wanting to bring the patient back for, for, for a face-to-face examination. Whereas um, movement disorders, you've got quite a high hit rate of wanting to do that. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, isn't it? Uh, I've had some positives and negatives. I've had the the sort of, like you say, the sort of like, okay, we've got about as far as we can virtually and as soon as I've got somewhere face to face to see people again, this person is going on the list. So it's a sort of, 
uh, awesome triage tool uh, for for that kind of that sort of situation. My best experience, uh, which is uh, maybe mimics your Western Isle thing slightly, but in a, in a more sort of um, Heath Robinson fashion, was uh, got asked to see a lady. Um, at Whitby Community Hospital, which is a bit of a trip. Normally, I'd go down there to do a clinic. Um, and I'd go up to the wards to see somebody that wasn't possible. So I FaceTimed the GP who works on the ward mm-hmm. several times a week. Had a chat with him, which is incredibly helpful because he's a very good GP. We then dandered down, you know, on, on a mobile, got carried down on the mobile, had a chat with the lady. The neurophysio was there. Mm-hmm. Um, who then got this patient up to walk. And I could see this kind of gait hesitancy and freeze, a very chaotic gait. I could see the impulsivity. I could see the pull tests, retropulsion. I mean, the retropulsion was extraordinary. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure this lady's got a kind of PSP variant because um, the eye movements are impossible to tell on a phone. But yeah, that was really helpful. Yeah, yeah. But that was a very labor-intensive um, video consultation because a GP was there and a, and a physio yeah. and a patient and, and, and it worked really well but um, I think yes you know the, the, the kind of dial into the living room thing I, I'm, I'm thinking that's going to be tricky at times. It is, yeah no it is, it is. I, I, like, I like your example though and I, I, I heard examples of getting palliative care physicians on, 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 on three-way calls and examples where the, you, the, they were linking into someone at home and the GP was also linking in as well so that I think I think there are there are there are there are ways in which I think we'll be able to use telemedicine that I think will will be good. I did a similar thing where one what a, a, a care home resident with Parkinson's disease had a, um, a fractured neck ephema following a fall um, was then in in a community hospital um, for rehab, and the charge nurse was asking the question, "Do you think you know this patient's rehabbing poorly?" Could you know? Are they undertreated from their Parkinson's point of, point of view? And then literally doing the attend anywhere on, on, on and seeing the patient on the ward saying, "Well, yeah, yes, they clearly are," and that you know could you know make this adjustment to, to you know to the medication. And 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 actually, um, that you know that that that, that connection took ten minutes and and um, and may have saved months of rehab. Mm. <laughs> you, know, so, you know, so so I. I I think I think I think it's it, it's a good time to be it's a good time to be adaptable with it, uh, and and um, if if our presence can be felt in in, in certain in, in these 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 places where you know that, that we don't normally visit, that's a that's a good thing. I just think we have to be um, we just have to I would urge a bit of caution about um, about being definitive about what your diagnosis is. Well, I mean, it just maybe this is unknowable, um, and it would make an interesting study, wouldn't it? Um, the kind of diagnostic changes you make on a face-to-face from a virtual. Yeah, maybe yeah. somebody's done that already. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've got it wrong. I mean, on the Western Isles cases, I've, I've got I've, I've got a couple wrong, uh, you know, over the years. Um, and the reason that that and and it was only that that they weren't progressing in the way that that you thought they they should progress. Hmm. Or, and, and one wasn't responding to medication. So he said, right, okay, well, this isn't following the pattern. So I'll bring them down to Glasgow to, to then examine them and, 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 you know, and do further investigations. And that, and that took you away. And it's funny, those ones, those are the ones that stick in your mind rather than the ones where you got the diagnosis right. Um, 
but yeah, no, I think I think we'll all we'll all be interested to see from the from the um, um, from the telephone clinics and the telemedicine clinics what our what our recall rate is going to be, and what and if we're discharging them from after a telephone or a telemedicine clinic, how many are going to get re referred into the system? You know. I, I, Something that's not clear to me around telemedicine is, you know, is the is the kind of medical legal expectation of what we should be doing diagnostically altered in any way? Yeah. So I've asked that question. I asked that question in the pre-COVID era. I I, I contacted my defence union and said, "Is my opinion for a telemedicine um, on on the, my diagnostic opinion considered the same medical legally for me seeing someone?" in a telemedicine clinic as it would be if they were face to face and the answer was yes mm. undoubtedly yeah uh, although i think you know not that one practices should purely practice defensively but I, i'm not sure one could be blamed for missing the brisk no, reflex no, or the papilledema no, no abs, ab, absolutely but i don't think up until these are these are these are these are new situations right and mm. and I, I i can't imagine um um, there being a, a, a medical legal case, but from from the law, the minute the law doesn't differentiate, and there isn't there isn't a there isn't a precedent to say, oh well, it's okay. That was only a telemedicine clinic. That precedent might might come, uh, mm. uh, you know, as uh, you know, with 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 what's happened with COVID. There will be some misdiagnoses that are made over the telephone, um, regardless of whether or not that, that that's that's more than the, the baseline or not. Who 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 knows? Yeah. It is. It is worth. It's sort of a chastening kind of evolution of our clinical practice, isn't it? It's kind of you know, it's it's got huge possibilities. And you know, yesterday I um, I did some very distant consultations virtually, which would be really challenging at the best of times, um, and would require people coming hours and hours from all over the place to kind of get an opinion. And so, uh, you know, I think yesterday I was feeling quite ch- chipper about mm-hmm. telemedicine um today was a wee bit more tr- trickier and so that, i guess it's a different side of the same coin that's it there, there are ups and downs of this of this covid era aren't there mm. you, know, you have you have you have a you have a bad telemedicine clinic and it's to hell with it you know <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's it but i, I you know I, I i i i guess sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work mm. and and I, to me um, the connection is a really important aspect of that. If someone, if, if someone, if you don't have, if you can't see and hear someone clearly, then, 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 then it becomes, it becomes, it becomes a, a lot, a lot harder. Yeah. And I think I like that idea of kind of recognizing the limitations. Uh, I mean, we do that. I mean, we have a kind of two Parkinson's clinics in, in, in the best of times, um, you know, a standard Parkinson's review clinic and a kind of rapid access MDT service. And very often we're sort of identifying in a in a fifteen or twenty minute consultation on one afternoon that you know all you can do in that time is recognize this is really complicated and we can't do this today. We're not going to get this sorted. We can't sounds like you've got PD dementia, you're hallucinating, you're fluctuating, you're falling, there's caregiver strain, everything's terrible. It's four o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. Let's do this next week and do it properly and i think you know so I, yeah I, I feel like maybe uh we shouldn't get kind of painted into a corner with a difficult diagnosis 
uh, on a telemedicine kind of setup, you should, you know, so I guess what you're saying, Ed, is like, be kind to yourself and say, like, I need to do this face to face. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, 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 but it also might give you some more flexibility. I, 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 don't, I don't know what it's like for you, but the real estate of the outpatient clinics quite, is quite, it's, it's quite competitive, or at mm. least it was pre-COVID. And, and, you know, booking a room and getting the space, you know, as soon as you're out of your clinic room, someone's in there and they've got their list and, 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 and getting, creating a bit of extra thing. But if you can, if you can connect to someone from, from, um, from your, you know, um, from, from, from your office and, and, and connect to attend anywhere and, and speak to the patient at home and just say, well, actually, that's something that I'm going to, I'm going to contact you about in the next couple of weeks. And then you, you know that might, that'll be a history aspect, and you and, and you're going to focus on that. So I think I think it will give us a a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of flexibility. Okay, good. I think yeah, it's important to have a positive kind of <laughs> a positive uptick at the end of that discussion. Oh, hang on a minute. Here's a question. I've recently read that seventy five percent of patients with uh, will present with cognitive changes at PD diagnosis, but without cause for any diagnostic concern uh, instrument activities of daily living are possibly affected early in PD. Are we supporting people to look after their cognitive health early enough? Do you use cognitive functional rating scales in practice in Glasgow? So, so I think if you do a really detailed cognitive assessment, you, you know, you're going to find typical patterns in, in, in early Parkinson's disease. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that that it's 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 causing any significant functional impairment. We we, we would we're fans of the Addenbrooks and Mockers and and um, um, we try and at least do these once a year in in, in our patient cohort. So I'm I'm not I, I I'm not familiar with the um, cognitive functional rating scale. Um, I, I'm, I'm lucky that I work with a, a, a good neuropsychology unit. So if I, if um, um, if someone needs a detailed cognitive assessment, then then, then I'll send a referral in. Uh, you know, for that. What about I think, you? I think um, I think what surprised me, um, looking particularly at like the campaign study, which when I was doing my PhD, we had just published out of Cambridge. You know, showing that at least a quarter of newly diagnosed and like an instant cohort, it, about 25% of them would meet the criteria for mild cognitive impairment on formal testing. And that was surprised me. And obviously that, you know, Deborah's um, kind of got an even higher percentage. And I think, yes, it depends how you're looking for it and how sensitive the tool you're using. Um, I think, um, and obviously then the confusion then is, well, okay, is this DLB kind of starts to sneak into your, kind of like if the cognitive problems. And I think I would, I think sort of subjective cognitive symptoms are really common early on. And, and I think a degree of cognitive impairment can be detected and there are lots of potential kind of anatomical substrates for that cortical and subcortical and dopaminergic and non-dopaminergic. Um, so I think it's, it's not at all surprising. A lot of people have cognitive symptoms and, and detectable cognitive impairment. Uh, how that equates to functional impact is, is, uh, difficult, but I think um, you know maybe that's where this cognitive functional rating scale is useful in a way that the kind of other measures are the other measures are a numerical kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I, I'm guessing that the cognitive functional rating scale is looking at the day-to-day -day impact more. Um, so, um, uh, uh, Deborah, note to self: 
(laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about that when we next meet. Uh, But it's a good point. And I think, you know, I, I think in general, I'm hoping that we're getting more proactive about dealing with the cognitive problems. Um, and certainly like we're trying to be very active about diagnosing PD dementia earlier and getting people onto cognitive enhancers earlier and, you know, trying to have those difficult discussions. Um, it's, it's difficult to do, but that is bearing fruit, I think, in terms of how we're managing things around our way anyway. Um, I think we're sort of coming to the end of, um, of the, uh, kind of discussion. Um, and as ever, I'm very thankful for people giving up their time, both listening in obviously, and also particularly for you, Ed, but, um, we've asked everybody the same question, um, over the last kind of month or so that we've been doing it, which is if you had any, you know, could give your younger self some advice, your year one registrar self, um, that you would like something you wished you'd know that you know now that you wish you'd known then. Have you got any kind of insights to offer on that? Um, yeah. Well, apart from invest in Bitcoin or something like that. <laughs> don't know if that's good advice now. Eh? Anyway, invest in yeah, Zoom, uh, buy yeah. Zoom shares. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Zoom, yeah, definitely. I, do you know, I think um, not to be, I, not to be hard on yourself you know, recognize that, that any, any clinical special subspecialty within neurology is going to take a bit of time. And it's all, it's all about hours that you put in. So don't expect a, a ST3 to be, uh, to feel confident about um, diagnosing atypical Parkinsonism or being familiar with the drugs that are available for Parkinson's disease. It's, 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 it's a journey and, and it's going to, it's going to take a bit of time on a personal level. I wish I'd, um, I wish I'd, I wish I'd worked elsewhere for 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 a period of time, and I, by that I mean I mean probably gone out of the country. Mm. Um, um, you know, there, there there was an opportunity at one point, and 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 I think I think that would have been a good seeing how a different system works would 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 have been uh, you know would have been useful. Specific to Parkinson's or, or movement disorder in general, I, I would just say read widely. You know, I I, I think. Um, if you're the if you're a registrar and you've got an interest in a, I I I, I have a, a a thing that that some some registrars say my my bit of subspecialty neurology is 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 the only bit of neurology I like and actually for for me movement disorders is fine but I I, I love general neurology I I I like I like the spread of it. And it's important that you don't confine your reading to just reading about movement disorders. Read read about everything else. And actually, if you read about um, if you read about you know motor neuron disease and neuromuscular disorders and cognitive disorders, you're actually going to be a better movement disorder neurologist as a result of it. There there there, there there's a huge there's a huge overlap between these things. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Um, I like being kind to yourself. I'm I'm all for that. I think. Um, uh because we're training people to be consultants yeah 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 we're yeah. not so there and that takes years that's right. so in the early years of your training you're by definition not good enough to be a consultant and you should not have that expectation of yourself yeah that's right i can remember i'm, I'm sure it's the same way where you trained as well it, the 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 grant the, the 
feeling the pressure in the ground rounds. Mm. So someone, so, you know, so that, that there's a, and we're selective about the cases that, that someone's going to present at one of these, one of these meetings. And, and they'll, and, um, and so a registrar might be asked a question about it or there might be, or, or even better, someone, there'll be an open question saying, right, does anyone want to discuss this case? I would turn around to my um, ST3 self and I would say, drop your shoulders and put your hand up and, and just, just go for it. Just talk because actually you're all, you, you know, there's not, there's not, there is, there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting things wrong, particularly mm. at that stage. And you'll end up learning so much more. Just, so just be, have the, have, have the confidence to just be, be happy to be wrong about things. Yeah. And then my, my other advice, cause most of our registrars travel quite, a reasonable distance to come and work at our center. And so I feel like certainly when I was a registrar in Middlesbrough, I was getting up really early, you know, traveling hour and a half and rubbish traffic and bad weather. And then by the time you get home, it's like eight o'clock. And I think, so I often say to our trainees, um, your evenings are not for reading neurology when you get home from James Cook. You know, I think like, I think doing James Cook is enough yeah. um you know the job itself and and that, again that comes back to being kind to yourself because it's a long old career isn't it and and it develops um, yeah don't, don't don't give up your hobbies i mean you know because because then then you know you'll you'll just suddenly turn around and you've got and, and you've got you've got nothing to do with your free time hmm. well i can see from behind you that you've clearly not given up yours ed which is good no, 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 <laughs> They probably encroach and compete on my on my work life to be honest. As the, as they should. That's Ed Newman proving that there's more to life than medicine, and that it's sometimes fine to be wrong, particularly in the neurology grand round, which we all dread, and that it's all very well being kind to your patients, but you're missing a trick if you're not also kind to yourself at the same time. Next week, Lou Wiblin chats to Dr. Sui Wong from Murphleen's Eye Hospital all about neuroophthalmology. Join us for the live Zoom cast if you can, and if not. Pick up the podcast wherever you pick up a podcast. <laughs> this has been a Tease Neuro production for no apparent reason whatsoever. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tease Neuro or find us on the Tease Neuro website. Hope to see you again soon. <laughs>